Shalom, everyone. So this is one of the deepest topics imaginable. And I'll be honest, it's ironic because we're talking about Kenyan and we're talking about ownership. We're going to talk about some of the most basic halachic aspects of what it means to be a Jew, what it means to live a Jewish life, is to understand the basic halachos of ownership, how to transfer ownership, how to buy things, how to sell things. And yet this is... While seeming to be the most mundane topic of halacha, it is literally one of the deepest topics imaginable. And the reason is because we're going to question everything. We're going to try to build a yisod, a profound perspective that will completely revolutionize the way you approach everything in halacha, but in particular, the sugya of ownership. And the best place to start is to question the nature of ownership. And what we're going to do is a little different than what we usually do in this year, because usually we build the basic halachos, then we go a little deeper in, and then we go a little deeper b'machshava. But in this year, it's going to be one of those things where we are going to build a bunch of questions. We're just going to layer question after question after question and just lay out the entire spectrum of this sugya, of kinyanim, of ownership, and then we're going to deepen. And we're going to go step by step and just deepen and deepen and deepen, explore, and ultimately try to build something incredible. And again, the starting point of this year is to question the nature of ownership. Because if you think about it, why do you own what you own? Why can't I take the shirt off your back? So we don't question it. We say, because I paid for it, or because my parents gave it to me, because I own it, or because we'll just kind of come up with answers and that's okay. But you want to deepen. You want to say, why do you own it? Why does it matter if you paid money for it? Why does it matter if your parents gave it to you, your parents owned it? What does it mean to own something? Why is stealing wrong? Why, if you lose something, should someone return it to you? What is the nature of ownership? Why is something yours? And it's something which, if you've never thought about this before, it will take you quite some time and you might not have a good answer. And we're going to have to think about this. Why should you own what you think you own? Or what you halachically own? Or what legally you own? What is the nature of ownership? And how do kinyanim work? All of Choshim Mishpat, kinyanim, to acquire something. If you look through, you know, so much of Shas, so much of Gemara, so much of Halacha is Hilchas kinyanim. How to do business deals, how to buy things, how to sell things, how to create kinyanim, how to break kinyanim. So in terms of creating kinyanim, if you're going through shas, you come up with just a whole list of different types of kinyanim. You have hagba and mashikh and chazaka and chalipin and suder and situmta and matana. And these are not all the same and they don't all work the same way. But the more fundamental question is, how do they work in the first place? What's the, why, first of all, if kinyanim is just creating ownership, why don't we just have one? Why do we have all these different types? And to take it a step further, What's happening when you do a Kenyan? And I will be honest, you can spend your entire life learning Gemara and Allah and never ask yourself that question. You can ask yourself, how does a Kenyan suda work? It seems to be a little bit of a Chiddush that you're doing it in a weird way. And what is a Chazaka? And a, you know, Chalip, and what's really happening here? And, uh, you know, Mashiach versus Hagba. You can just focus on the details and get caught up in the surface and just learn the Rishonim and focus on the different ways to approach each Kenyan, who holds what and what we hold Lahalacha, and you move on. But you can spend your entire life never asking yourself, why does it work in the first place? What is a Kenyan? And then we have, on the flip side, breaking a Kenyan. You have Hefker and you have, you know, Yeish, which is related, but, you know, 
before getting into the distinction between half grain yeish and say what exactly is happening how do you break off ownership who owns it if i'm mafia or something who owns it so is it possible for it to go from you owning it to no one owning it that's a very big halakha question and something worth thinking about how, what does it mean to break ownership what does it mean for no one to own it but then you have other concepts like siluk and, and mechila and all these different concepts where you're taking something that you owned and you're cutting it off and you're saying anyone can own this now or anyone can make a kenya on this now or i don't need you to return it to me that's a big classic machlokas and yeish what is yeish do does it mean that you don't have a chiv to return it or does it mean that they can make a kinyan on it or how is the, how are these things working these are classic questions but again how is this working in the first place what does it mean to break off a kinyan to create a kinyan and we have these strange concepts in shas you have come up in uh, one of the classic concepts in shas is hefker bezin hefker so that means that Bezdin can basically say that something that you owned no longer belongs to you. How does that work? There's a classic uh, machlokas actually based on the different sources which the Gemara learns at the source from whether Bezdin can just remove it from your ownership or can also bring it into someone else's ownership. How is this working? And, and one of the most interesting sugyas in Shas is an entire Masechta, Masechta's Kedushin. The entire Masechta is devoted towards understanding the nature of Kedushin, which is not marriage, it's actually the first step of marriage, Nesuin is marriage. One of the whole sugyas of Mesach Kedushin as well is understanding the relationship between Kedushin and Nesuin. Is it a two-step process? Is it one full process with two stages? Is really Nesuin the marriage and Kedushin is just preparation? Is Kedushin only the marriage and Nesuin is finishing off? Very interesting. We don't really do this nowadays. We have... Uh, a non-halachic engagement, and then we do it at the same time. But Kedushin and Suin are two different stages of the marriage. And it seems to be that the entire Masech is focused on the nature of this Kenyan. Now, the modern sense of the VR hears a Kenyan when it comes to marriage, and you become very disturbed. What do you mean? A husband is acquiring his wife? Because that's how halacha sets it up, that the husband acquires his wife. The, the husband has to do a Kenyan Kedushin. And we learned it out, you know, all the different types of Kenyan you can do. You can do it with Kesef, you can do it with Shtar, you can do it with the different ways to do the Kenyan. We're not going to get into details right now. But the question becomes, what does this mean? You know, halacha is not the most mundane way of living life. It's the holiest, most uplifting, inspiring, deep, profound way of living life, and you're making a Kenyan on your wife? Now, we need to understand what that means. A husband's not buying his wife. So why is Kedushin a Kenyan? You really have to appreciate the question in order for you to appreciate the answer because this is a real question. How can it be that halacha is set up that a man seems to be acquiring his wife? If we're talking about building the most incredible, deep, profound spiritual relationship where you're devoting your lives to each other and building a Bainam on Bisrael, building something tremendously deep and profound and meaningful and sincere. It's being established and set up with a Kenyan. So we have to explore what a Kenyan means. And there are other really interesting questions that come up as well. For example, there are certain sugyas and shas. Uh, you have this, you know, Babakaman, Babamitsi, and just, you know, classic sugyas related to Gazela and Aveda and Shomrim, 
where it seems to be that no one person really owns an object. It seems to be that it's somewhere in between. And the question is like, who owns it? So let's say someone steals something. Does the Ganev or the, the Gazan, does he own the object? Or does the original Baal, does he remain the owner? And what becomes very interesting is that there's a classic debate, which comes up many times in Shas, whether you can be Makdish or do Kedushin with these questionable objects. Let's say someone steals a diamond ring. Can he marry a woman with that diamond ring? Or can the original Baal marry a woman with that ring? Because one person has physical ownership, the other person seems to, you know, still own it, but who really owns it? And you have this for Navida. I lost my object, it's still mine, and now a person comes along and finds it. Who owns it? Well, he has it in his hand, but seems to still belong to me, but I don't have it. I don't have access to it. I don't have it in my rishus, in my property. When it comes to shomrim, you have a shoal, a borrower, you have a socher, a renter, you have a shomer chinam, a shomer sacher. So these are different levels of shomrim, and there's a question, you have, let's say there's a mashkon, there's a question as to who really owns it and to what extent. So there will be different levels within those different levels of shomrim, but they have, you know, for example, shoal, he's allowed to use it. And Hashem Socher, he's also allowed to use it. He's also paid to be able to use it. And Hashem Echinam or Hashem Socher are basically people who are watching it and they're either doing it for free or being paid to watch it. They're not really allowed to use it. Now, the question is, who owns it in this case? Because the person who originally owned it, he doesn't have it in his physical property anymore. He's went on vacation, he walked away, whatever it is. And the question is, do they both own it? Do neither own it? Do they both have partial ownership? Does only one have partial ownership and the other person has no ownership? But the reason why one has partial ownership is because he either only has physical ownership over it or only, you know, halakhically he owns it. These are questions to think about in terms of the nature of ownership. And to take it one step further, Chad, another element, let's say you have a chamsan, right? Someone who... He's in goes into a store and he basically says, Give me this or I'll I'll you know I will kill you. And the guy says, Sorry, it's not for sale. And the guy says, I don't care, I'm taking it, and he leaves the amount of money that it's worth on the table, takes the object, and I mean I guess a, a store wouldn't be a good example, goes into the person's house and the guy says, you know, you can't have this, it's not for sale. He says, I don't care, I'm taking it, but I'm gonna pay for it. So is that a ganav? Right? Because he he paid the value of the object, he just did it against the person's will. You'd think that there's something wrong here, but where is the actual fault? Because you can't say that the reason why he's a Ghanav is because he stole that person's value because he gave the value back. He returned the monetary value. So you can say that it's still not it's not ideal because the person didn't agree to it, but where's the real loss over here and where's the real Ganeva? That's the question. And you could say that, okay, he did an Avera and then he made up for the Avera, but the making up for it wasn't okay because he did it, you know, proactively. And there are ways to get around it, but it's something to really think about. And this was a lot, right? Right away, you are introduced to a lot, a lot, a lot of information. And for some of you, a lot of these concepts might be very familiar. For others, these might be a lot of new concepts and new ideas. These are the basics of Hilchas Kinyanim and ownership throughout Shas. They come up in you know, countless sugyas, countless different topics in different areas of Torah thought. And the best way to now frame 
the next step is I want to take it a step further. And I want to ask you both how you think about it and just how you've seen it in halachic, let's say halachic literature or different svarim that you've read. What's the relationship between you and your things? Like, what's the Torah's value system? How do we approach the relationship between you and your things? Do, are your, like, how, how, how important are your things to you? How important should your things be to you? And, I mean, think about it. Think about, for example, I'll, I'll give you an example. Should you risk your life to save your possessions? So you would think, absolutely not. You'd think that, you know, life is more important and your things are not important, or at least not as important. And it seems to be that on the one hand, it's clear foolishness and that valuing money more than your life is just absurd. The Gemara Sanhedrin, the Fine Dalam Nalav, says, teaches us two things. means that you have to give up your life in order to avoid violating Vodazara and certain, you know, major of yours, teaches that there are people who value their money more than their lives. And for these people, the Torah is teaching us that not only do they need to give up their lives for these mitzvahs, meaning you can't violate Avodah Zarah, even if it's to save your life, you even need to give up your money rather than violate Avodah Zarah, right? Because they have a, a complete corrupted value system where they value their money more than their own lives. And it seems to me that this is clearly referring to a shyam and foolish people that, you know, what's the logic here? If you die, you're going to lose your money and your life. So why would you even think that your money is more valuable? Right? But these people are so obsessed with money, the life without it would be meaningless. It would be impossible. They can't imagine living. It's the same thing for them. So the, basically the Gemara is saying, not only do you have to give your life, you even have to give your money. So it seems to be pretty clear, right? And yet Yaakov Avinu? Yaakov Vinu, Chazal say, was willing to risk his life to save his Pachem Ketanim. So, famous, famous episode in the Torah, where Yaakov goes back in the middle of the night, no help, and he risks his life. It's not that he gave up his life, okay, but he risks his life to save his possessions, these small little Pachem Ketanim, small little vessels. He wasn't poor, he was very wealthy, and he went back and risked his life for these meaningless vessels? What's pshat? So again, we now have a very interesting machshava question, which is, what is the value of money? What is the value of your things, the, the things that you own? Should they be important to you? Does halacha and does Torah value money? And it seems to be that on the one hand, we saw from the Gemara that it's ridiculous to value your money and your things in anywhere in the vicinity of how you value yourself. And yet, Yaakov risked his life to save his Bacham Ketanim, was Peshat. And now we get to a very, very peculiar Sugi, one of the most fascinating Sugi's in Shas, because if you understand the normal system of the Sugi, this sugya seems to be an outlier and seems to make no sense. Because it seems to be that there's a debate in Shas whether you're allowed to steal in order to save your life. And the problem right away for anyone who's, you know, learned any of the sugyas of Yaharag Valyav or of, you know, giving up your life for certain mitzvahs, the 
you know, the sugya 101, which most people, it's one of the most famous sugyas in Torah, it comes up in Sanhedrin, it comes up in Yom, it comes up in Psachim, it comes up in many, many different Mesachtas. And the sugya basically goes through three Averas that you have to give up your life for. You're not allowed, if someone comes over to you and says, kill this person or I'll kill you, you can't kill him. It's actually the opposite. Meaning, who says your blood's rather? Maybe his blood's rather. Who says his blood's rather? Maybe your blood's rather. You don't know whose life is more valuable. My chazas, you can't choose one life over another. You cannot kill someone to save your own life. Um, I apologize that was done by Pes, so I, I flipped up the Aramaic. But the idea is that you can't kill someone to save your life. And the same is true of Avodah You cannot violate Avodah to save your to save your life. You have to give up your life. You have to devote your life to Hashem. If someone says, serve Avodah I'll kill you. You can't serve Avodah Now, are there nuances? Are there debates in terms of the parameters? of? Yes, all of these sugyas are very, very complex. And literally, you can be mechaber hundreds of svarim on these sugyas alone. But the third one is that you're not allowed to violate you know, adultery, or you're not allowed to uh, go into an inappropriate relationship. And there's, again, like the Lushan is different than different sugyas. We're not going to get into the nuances. But idolatry, adultery, and murder, you're not allowed to violate even to save your life. All the other mitzvahs, the chai, um, the, 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 the Torah says, behem, that you should live by the Torah, not die by them. And therefore, you are allowed to violate all the other mitzvahs to save your life. You're allowed to violate Shabbos. You're allowed to eat. Someone says, you know, eat this cheeseburger or I'll kill you. That's a classic example that everyone nowadays gives for this year, is that you're allowed to eat the cheeseburger. And yet, the Gemara, and not just one Gemara, we'll see a couple Gemaras, seem to imply that it's usher to steal in order to save your life. The Gemara is talking about David HaMelech, David HaMelech had a kasha. Is he allowed to steal some of the food from a Jewish field, a Jewish farm, in order to feed his troops? And the Gemara has a debate that goes back and forth. He sends the kasha to Sanhedrin, and Sanhedrin sends back a response. But the Gemara says that it's normally it's usher to steal in order to save your life. And it just says it, like, flat out. You're not allowed to save your own life if it means that you're going to have to steal. Now, what does this mean? It seems to be against all these Gemaras that say that there's only three of Averis that you're not allowed to violate in order to save your life. So Tosos immediately says, no, 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 no. It doesn't mean that you're not allowed to steal in order to save your life. It just means that there's still an Isser. Right, gets into classic lumdus of how what happens when you're allowed to violate an avera. Is it that the avera is no longer there, or is it that the avera is there but you're still allowed to violate it? So if the avera is no longer there, you didn't steal. You were just allowed to eat it. So what Tosu was saying that no, it's still also meaning you still stole. So you have to return the money afterwards. So in the moment to save your life, you can take the food, but you have to pay it back. Now, here's the classic question on Tosfos is, okay, what if you can't pay back? Does it mean you can only steal if you're able to pay back now? Or does it mean you can steal even if you currently can't pay back and you can pay back at a future time? There's a lot of lumdus, a lot of questions, a lot of interesting things, but that's just, you know, how Tosfos immediately fixes this problem. Rashi, on the other hand, does not fix the problem. He says, you are not allowed to steal in order to save your life. It's actually us, sir. And most Rishonim, I don't know how many of the Rishonim actually touch upon Rashi itself, but the Rishonim that take this to the extreme, and many of the Achronim who understand Rashi to take this to the extreme, they actually hold, according to this approach, that you cannot still save your life. Now, 
we don't hold like that. Shulchan Aruch holds you are allowed to steal in order to save your life. You just have to pay back. Okay. But within the Lundus and within the Gemara, Rashi is giving a perspective that you cannot steal to save your life. And it's not only this Gemara, and it's not only Rashi. There's other Gemaras as well, which we'll briefly touch upon. But the question before we mention those Gemaras is what is going on? How... Uh, it, it's not murder. It's not a vodazar. It's not a gilarais. Why shouldn't you be able to violate the isser of stealing or to save your life? So there's another fascinating Gemara in Ksubis, which seems to imply that an aide is not allowed to falsely, basically he's not, test, he's not allowed to testify falsely in order to cause someone to lose money. So someone tells, basically says, I'm going to kill you unless you falsely testify and make this person lose money. Then you are not allowed to do it. You have to give up your life. Again, that's causing someone to lose money. That's you know a form of stealing. And why shouldn't you be able to do this to save your life? So there's ways of getting out of it. The Ra'ah is, uh, gives a very interesting shot. He says it's just talking about going with nimishur adin. It's minas chasidis. It means that to save this person's money, you're allowed to give up your life. And this actually gets to one of the most famous sugis in the Yarag Valyavor sugya, which is, when it's when the Gemara says that v'chayvahem, so for all other mitzvos, you're allowed to violate and you don't have to give up your life. Does it mean you're allowed to or do you have to? So the Rambam famously says that you are not allowed to give up your life for anything other than the big three. Tosfos, throughout Shas, many different places, says that you're allowed to. You're allowed to. Why? Because it's still a mitzvah. We're not going to get into this. The whole whole story get very, very complicated. It gets into you know very different value systems of what the purpose of life and is really in this world. And are you supposed to be looking for opportunities to give up your life? Okay, Hashem. Or is it only if you have to, then you're able to. This is a very, very complicated topic. But there is a famous shita of Tosos that you're allowed to give up your life for the other mitzvahs and the other averos. So. There, I was basically tapping into that concept and saying that that's really what's going on in this Gemara. And yet, um, there seems to be a possibility that perhaps this is another proof that you're not allowed to steal in order to save your life. There is another approach, by the way, which is, again, it needs a lot of context, it needs a lot more discussion. We're not really focusing on the lumbus of this topic right now. But there is a famous shita, and the Ra the actually seems to imply this as well as another possible answer, that the sugya of Yaharag Valyavar is only mitzvahs bin Adam Lamakam between us and Hashem. And for those mitzvahs, there are only three Averos that Hashem requires us to give up our life for. All the other ones, Vachaibem. But when it comes to bin Adam Lechavero, you're not allowed to violate any mitzvah bin Adam Lechavero in order to save your life because it's similar to the reason that the Gemara gave for why you're not allowed to kill someone to save your own life. My chazas, who says you're better? Why should you sacrifice that person to save your own life? Now you can say, okay, but my life is more important than his money or whatever, but it's an interesting perspective. It's not the mainstream perspective, but it's something to think about. It actually would explain another famous Gemara, Gemara in Sota, which says that it's better to not embarrass someone in public, it's better to jump into a kifshon eish than um, to be barabim, right? To embarrass someone in public is it's better to give up your life and jump into a kifshon eish, jump into a pit of fire. So the Meiri says, oh, that's not. It's just giving you muster. It's saying that embarrassing someone in public is really, really bad. And Rabbi Yonah says, no, embarrassing someone in public is actually, it's a sniff. It's a it's not a zraihu, it's kind of a chilek, it's an it's a offshoot of the Yisr of So it really is one of the big three. Why? Because when you embarrass someone in public, 
you're basically draining all the blood from their head and it's it's the pain the camera actually uses that lesson but the pain is the pain of death and it's you it's like, kind of like you you executed him because you, you all the blood from the person's head was drained out and Rabbeinu Yonah obviously is an extreme perspective it's actually interesting you can use Rabbeinu Yonah Shita the famous brain death debate whether someone's brain dead are they considered to be dead? So essentially, someone whose brain dead has no brain activity. So conceptually, it's like they've been executed. It's like they've been decapitated. Their head's been cut off. So Rabbi Yon Shita is that if the blood is drawn from the person's head, it's like their head's been cut off, and it's like they're dead. So you can say the same concept of brain death is like their head's been cut off, and it's like they're dead. It's a creative application of Rabbi Yon Shita. But the concept there is basically that either it's not meant to be taken literally, like the Me'iri, or like Rabbi Yonah, that it's like murder, so it fits into the big three. And yet, we can say similarly to this Ru'ah, that one second, embarrassing someone in public is a problem of Benim L'chaveir, or maybe I can't do that to save my own life, even though it doesn't fit into the big three. There is also a possibility that there are more than just the big three, because we have stealing, and now we have embarrassing someone in public, and there are others. Now the question becomes, is the big three really all-encompassing, or are there other Averos that you also have to give up your life for, and if so, why? So you can fit everything into the category of murder, or you can say maybe stealing is another. And so that's Tosfos on that sugya says that stealing, and, and Sota Yudam Abes says that stealing is actually the big four. And all, all the Gemara's the Gemara, Pesach and the Gemara, and Hedge and the Gemara, and Yoma, which mentions the big three, that's the only three, those are the three Averis that have Torah sources for Yahar Yavor. But when it comes to stealing, there's no Torah source, it's Misvara, and therefore... Uh, I don't know if he used the Lashon of Misar, but he says that we basically learn it out uh, in terms of the Chumrah, Saavera, in terms of how severe it is, and you still have to give up your life even though it's not included in those Gemaras. So that's another creative exp- expression. But we need to really think about why stealing, why you'd have to give up your life in order to not steal. Because it doesn't seem to be anywhere near as bad as murder, because stealing, you're literally taking someone's money, someone's thing, you have to give up your life to not do that, really? And the Gemara Nishani gives another interesting example of this, another proof to seemingly say that you do have to give up your life. It's talking about Hamas. Right? Hamas is, is armed robbery, and it, the Gemara says explicitly that you cannot violate this, you can't violate Hamas in order to save your life. So the the, the commentaries are, are trying to figure out what to do with this, and there is a way of getting out of this by saying it's not really a problem. It's not saying that you can't still save your life because one of the commentaries says that the reason is because you're an armed robber. So when you go to steal, the person's going to try to avoid it. They're going to say no, they're not going to cooperate, and you're going to end up killing them. So it's really just an application of you're not allowed to kill in order to save your life. But based on the Rashi and Babakama, we can read this Gemara the same way and say, Barishami is another proof that you're not allowed to steal in order to save your life. So we need to understand what is going on. And in the theme of really trying to build this spectrum before we try to approach this from a conceptual perspective, I want to just build one last one last aspect of this sugya in the sense of what's the relationship between you and your things. Because there are, there are a couple other sugyas in Shas. And I I want to take a step back and just explain why we're doing this. Because there are sugyas and there are sugyas. If you think of Torah as like a tree, there are sugyas that are leaves, there are sugyas that are small branches, there are sugyas that are big branches, and there are sugyas that are the actual trunk. And if you go to something root and big enough, it reverberates and has applications in all of Shas, all of Torah, all of Halacha, and 
the sugi of mamanus, the sugi of ownership, the sugi of kinyanim, how we're relating to money and things, that's a big sugi. It's a big topic. It's a big branch. It's not the trunk. It's not the trunk itself. Right? It's not the, 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 the very essence and core of all of Torah, but it's a big, it's like once you get off of the trunk and get to a big branch, that contains a lot of other branches. It contains a lot of leaves at the end. And when you understand this one concept that we're going to build, it will fundamentally shift so much of the Torah that you have learned and will learn and how you see the world because it's so big. It's so fundamental. And so I just want to add three more, three more applications, three more questions. One is throughout Baba Kama, there's one of the classic questions of Niske Mamun. Niske Mamun. So the classic case in the Gemara is that you have a shore. You have, um, you have an animal, and that animal it does damage. And the classic lumdish question is, why are you chayiv if your animal damages? Right. So is it just a chayiv or is it pshia? Is it just that, you know, someone has to pay for the damage and you own the, the animal, so you're going to pay for it? Or is it like, and this is some days in the Gemara to make it seem like it's literally as if you were the one who damaged it. It's literally like you went and you just stabbed a hole in the, in the person's car or broke the window, but you didn't. It was your animal. Okay, I get that. I get that you have to pay for it. It's your responsibility. And maybe, 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 like, there's an Avera element because you weren't, you were negligent, you didn't watch your animal. But to make it to the extreme, which is not only you're responsible, not only is there an Avera, but it's like you yourself did it. You're not a cow, right? You're not an animal. And nowadays it would be your car. Nowadays it would be, you know, something that you own doing something. The cow can't pay, so it makes sense that you have to pay, but you didn't do it. Your animal did it. So why are why you not only have to pay, but we consider it to be as if you yourself are the mazik, and, and there has to be a distinction because Adam Hamazik is different than this Gemaron. When you yourself damage, it's different than when your animal damages, and yet there are lots of. There's a lot of sugis and a lot of rishonim that make it seem like this Gemaron. When your animal damages, it's as if you yourself did the, did the damage. And that doesn't seem to make sense. And it's the same thing with Karbanos. If you look at the Lushan for Karbanos, especially the famous Ramban when it comes to Karban Chatas, the Ramban says that when you give a Karban, you put the animal on the Mizbeach, and you have the Kavana, you have the mindset, that it's as if I myself am on the Mizbeach. And this animal should fulfill that requirement because really, because I made this mistake, because I was negligent, which by the way, the Ramban explains, and the idea of negligence, where even if you did, Karmachatz did a mistake, but the fact that you made the mistake means that it wasn't important enough to you, and therefore it's, it, there's an element of, of intention, even if it was an unintentional error, because you, for something that's extremely important to you, you don't make mistakes, right? You don't forget to do things that are absolutely fundamental to what you believe in and to what you care about. And it's only when you don't care about it enough that you make mistakes. But we're not going to get into that. It's a, it's a very, it, it can hurt. It can hurt because we're not perfect. But again, it's a value. It shows what's important to you because you're very careful and you really put up boundaries and make sure that you fulfill the things that you really care about. But the Ramban says that when you do make a mistake and you bring the Karban Chattas, you have to imagine as if really you should be on the Mizbeach and the Karban is replacing you. So the animal is replacing you. Okay, well, well how is that working? Why should your animal replace you? Your animal isn't you, and you're not your animal. So why, again, do we have this concept of viewing your animal like yourself? If your animal damages, it's like you damaged. When you did the Avera, your animal's getting the uh, the punishment. Oh, how, like, 
forgetting all of the practical questions, which is like, you know, like what's the logic in that? They also get asked the more fundamental logical question, which is what is the basis for having any similarity or connection between you and your animal? And there's also very interesting, you know, when it comes to Tsuras. When it comes to Tsuras, the Tsuras goes on your things, it goes on your house. Again, your things or your house, that's not you. If you did an Avera, the Tsuras should go on you. Okay, I understand, Tsuras goes on you. Okay, even your clothing is not you. So your belongings, your clothing, your money, your animals, your objects, again and again and again, we have this fundamental question, what is going on? What is the Torah what is the Torah of objects? What is the Torah of money? What's the Torah of ownership? What's the Torah of thingness, of things? This is such an interesting sugi. It's, and, it, and if you're not bothered, if this is just an interesting question, you need to take a moment to really think about the fact that your things, your money, your objects, should not be so important. They should not be you. You're not your things. And we need to also take a step back and understand how does ownership work? Gets back to our very initial question of how do you approach the question of ownership? And I will say at this point that this is a very deep shear. We're going to delve deep. And the reason why I don't split this type of shear up into pieces is because it's important to see how everything comes together. And this is a good place to pause if you, you know, need to get, take a break, you need to eat, whatever it is, you have to go to work, you have to go to sleep. But the point of this type of shear is to give a lot, to provide a lot, and to do in one full throttle shear what could take tens if not hundreds of shear. And the purpose is to go to the absolute core and to engage in real thought, real questions, and get to the absolute root of the Torah consciousness of these ideas. And if you take it seriously, and you really allow the ideas to permeate the way you currently live and think and perceive whatever it is that we're talking about, and it doesn't only apply to this shirim, all these types of shirim that we give, the effect is, is infinite. The, the repercussions are infinite. We're going to the root of things. And... What I want to do now is I want to transition to delving into the concept of ownership because the more we delve into the nature, the theory, the idea of what ownership is, the more we can get deeper into what halachic ownership is truly about and we can provide one idea, one concept that will not only answer all of these questions but will give a frame, a paradigmatic frame for how to approach this and People can spend years, years in Choshen Mishpat, Hilchas Kinyanim, ownership, you know, the halachas of stealing. You can learn Baba Kama. You can learn all of these, you know, Baba Mitzvah. You can learn all of these Hilchas Avida, Shomrim, all of these sugyas, and never really ponder this, and therefore never really learn it, because you have no idea what the root of the expression is. And... Sometimes I talk a little too much about the theory, about the ideas before actually explaining it, but I just want to emphasize this. I can't emphasize this enough. The moment you truly appreciate going to the root of something, it revolutionizes how you see all the expressions. And if there's one idea, one concept that will change the way you learn Torah forever, it's 
Always pursue the root. Always pursue the klal. Always dig as deep as you possibly can. It's the Ramchal's, literally his mantra, it's what he talks about all the time. And the Ramchal is just unbelievable. Maharal talks about this as well. You want to go for the root. So let's go for the root. What's, what's the nature of ownership? So to do this, I want to build a spectrum because there are different theories of ownership. One theory, and this is perhaps the most barbaric, classical, undeveloped perspective of ownership, is control. Power. Control. Which means what? It means that there's no such thing as ownership. There's no concept, metaphysical, spiritual concept of ownership. You own, quote-unquote, whatever it is that you can control. What does it mean to control it? It means that you can protect it. You can destroy it if you want to. You can use it. You can give it away. It means that you control it. You can do what you want with it. But if you can't control it, if you lose control, you lose ownership, which means what? Which means that the ownership in the realm of control is that you can maintain control over it. Right? So it's that you can maintain control over whatever it is that is in your vicinity, in your property, in your realm of ownership. And whatever it is that you can take control over by force and power, that's also now yours. It's a brutish animalistic form of ownership where it's completely simple. And this is the system of the animal world. This is the concept of survival of the fittest. The strongest will win. The strongest will control everything because no one can stop them. You can't take what they have because you'll die. They'll kill you. And you can't stop them from taking what they want from you because if you try stopping them, they will kill you. If you become strong enough, you can start to own things because you can take and you can protect. But it's a system of pure animal drive. And what's the problem of running a world, a society, a community, a culture on this type of ownership? Society can't function that way. It's barbaric. Because when you have a system of survival of the fittest, whoever is physically strongest or you know brilliant enough and and, and you know, smart enough to create systems to protect and, and conquer, they will control everything. And what we'll do basically in response is we will essentially create a practical system of ownership. And that's the modern world. If you look at the secular world, the way the world is set up, fundamentally the Western world, is a social contract. It's a societal agreement. And the principle is as follows. Ownership does not exist. No one really owns anything, but for the practical purpose of having a society that runs in order and runs in a way where you don't have to worry that someone's going to kill you, someone's going to steal from you, someone's going to take you, the, the world cannot go on this way. We'll create a societal agreement where you own what you own. If you pay for it, if you earn it, if you abide by these rules, then you will get you know, money in return for working. You can buy things with your money. You can you know, inherit money from your parents. But the entire system of money and ownership and things and belonging to you, that concept, it's a societal agreement. It's for society to function because we don't want people to live in fear. Because otherwise, no one would really want to live in a world where you work, where you build your lives, because someone can just take it away from you. 
and you know, no one would get anything done. The world would be chaotic because the world wouldn't be able to function. So we set up rules. We set up a system. And that's the concept of money and bills and banks. This idea is that a dollar is subjectively worthless. We agree to give it a certain value. It allows for the economy to function, but it's, it's a system of agreement. You know, food is really valuable. Right? It actually has life-sustaining energy. But money is a social construct. It's something we give value. Now, diamonds and golds, that's, that's a, a more theoretical, interesting thing to discuss because there is no real value to gold and diamonds. We give it value because of the fact that, number one, it looks a certain way. It represents a certain idea of, you know, it's rare and it's, it's beautiful and it's expensive. So there's a whole bunch of interesting things to think about in terms of the actual value of gold and diamonds. But money and bills, that's fundamentally objectively valueless. We give it value to create our system of economy, our system of value and worth, and it gives value to the other things we do. It's part of an entire system of creating a society that's built on an agreed rule system. And this is one of the most famous, famous concepts in sexual literature. literature. It's, you know, Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau talk about the social construct, contract theory, where we basically accept a burden of responsibility to abide by certain rules and give up certain rights in order to protect our own lives and our own interests. So, yes, I will allow myself to be ruled by the government and to be ruled by certain strict rules and, and, and the law and etc 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 and in return I have a government that will protect me and protect my life and in Plato's The Republic this is Glaucon who also interestingly said that the reason why we should live morally and not steal and do things like that to other people is because we'd rather act nicely to others so that they do the same to us which is this idea of there's nothing really wrong about stealing, but we just don't want people to steal from us, so that's why we don't do it. It's a system that doesn't outrightly acknowledge it, but is built on the premise that there is no such thing as ownership. There's no such thing as morality. There's no such thing as stealing. Because according to this, here's the fundamental problem. According to this, stealing isn't wrong, it's just inconvenient. Just think about that. Stealing isn't wrong. It's not immoral. It's not evil. It's not deceitful. It's just we, we don't want to live in that type of world. It's not comfortable to live in a world that a society can function normally. So we set up rules in response. But what? think about what a robber actually thinks. What does a robber feel? A ganov? A robber? They don't feel like they're doing something wrong. What do they say? They say, I don't want to be part of the society. These rules don't apply to me because I don't care about them. Because what's the purpose of a social contract? The social contract theory is I uh, agree to live by these rules in return for the benefits. What if someone says, I think I can get more benefit from not playing by the rules? They're not a bad person. They're not immoral. Because remember, in this system of thought... The, the rules are just there to protect you. But if you say, listen, I actually believe that I can get more out of my life by stealing, 
they don't feel like they're bad people. They don't feel like they did anything wrong. They feel like they're brilliant because all these fools are playing by these rules and I'm smart enough to know that I can become a millionaire by not playing by these rules. I can transcend the system. And if you really want to go deep onto this, this is a fascinating psychological phenomena where people who don't believe in morality People who don't believe in truth, they don't believe in Hashem, they don't believe in uh, you know, halacha, they don't believe in any higher system, they just believe that we are advanced chimpanzees. You know, my great-great-grandfather was, was, you know, a baboon. Whatever it is. They, they don't believe in morality, so they actually believe these... If someone doesn't believe in morality and they start conquering the world of stealing and corruption and lying and deceit and all of these things. If you really want to understand the inner, psycho the inner psychology of this type of person, they believe that they are the real superheroes of the world. Like, they believe that they are Batman. They believe they are a superhero. Why? Well, well part of it is like Nietzsche. Nietzsche is famous for giving an attack on religion, which basically says that religion shackles humanity. So what does religion do? Religion, it essentially takes all of those who are strong and dominant and victorious in all aspects of life, and it makes them feel bad about themselves. And what does it do? It takes the weak, those who are you know, thinkers and, and full of wisdom, but there's no real value to that, but they, they can't conquer the world, they can't succeed in the world, and they create this concept called morality to enslave the strong. Right, because what happens when you have someone who's strong and dominant and victorious, and the weak come and say, oh, you're actually the weak ones. Because it looks like you're all strong, but you're not going to heaven. You're going to Gehenna. You're going to hell. So I'm going to enslave you. This is Nietzsche's, like, it's a very strong attack. And he says, the weak become empowered and the strong become enslaved because the weak enslave the empowered by telling them that you need to abide by morality. So what's Nietzsche basically saying? You could steal this, but I'm telling you you can't because of morality. And if you don't believe in morality, then what these people are actually doing, the religious, are telling those who aren't religious that if you don't abide by my rules, you're destined to suffer. And again, if someone doesn't believe in this and they say, no, I'm not going to live by these rules because number one, morality is not real. Number two, I don't care about the rules of society and government. What they do is they basically say, I'm going to become a superhero. And if you really, uh, I mean, this is complicated because if you don't give this thought, it just it doesn't sound like it makes sense. If you give it some thought, someone who says, I am going to steal, I'm going to succeed, I'm going to be ambitious, and I'm going to do whatever it takes, the ends justify the means, and it doesn't really matter, Machiavelli, I'm just going to do whatever I want to succeed. That person, in their own mind, is a true superhero. Because what do they do? They, they transcended all the limitations of this fake morality and the governmental rules that have no basis and are just for other people. They don't play by the rules, they don't play by the system, and they become exceptionally successful, and they become superheroes. They basically become the greatest that they can become, and they transcend the rules of morality and the rules of law. What's the truth? The truth is that these people who think of themselves as superheroes, think of themselves as being limitless, and they can do whatever they want. They basically have broken off the shackles uh, and limitations of morality, and they've achieved all of their greatness because they don't give in to their moral conscience. 
because that's not real. These people think that they are the greatest among us. And the truth is that they are slaves to their lowest selves. They serve themselves. They have given in to the hypocrisy of believing that they are their own source of meaning and purpose, and they have basically created themselves, and there's no higher source, there's no higher reality, there's no higher purpose, there's no higher destination. There's nothing other than them. And their understanding of ownership actually reflects us. Now, we are not going to do this now, but there is an entire sugya where this is the fundamental debate between Yaakov and Esav. Where Esav basically, we're not going to get into this right now, but it's a fascinating sugya. Think about this. Why did Esav sell the Bechor and then get so upset that Yaakov, didn't, <laughs> that Yaakov got the bracha? Because according to Esav, ownership is purely practical. I own it because I can control it. And therefore, he, Esav thought that he was going to sell to Yaakov and steal it right back. Esav didn't believe that the Bechor really was sold. He basically just said, yeah, I'll, I'll sell it to you, but I don't acknowledge that. It's not real, because Esav believed in, number one, there is nothing more than this world. That's why he was so depressed when Avram Avinu died, because he saw death, and then for him, death isn't the beginning uh, of eternal life. It's the end of existence. And we're not going to get into this, because this is literally, we can spend hours talking about the Machokas, Pinyakov, and Esav. There's so many fascinating Makoros and really, really interesting discussions. But what was Yaakov's perspective? What is the Jewish perspective of ownership? What's the Jewish perspective of, of not only ownership, but Kinyanim and Kedushin and show, like all everything we opened up? What is the deeper perspective? It's very simple. The Jewish approach is that there is something real called ownership. It's fundamentally real, and it's halachic, metaphysical, metahalachic, spiritually real. Which means what? You actually own your things. They are fundamentally, halachically, spiritually, metaphysically, metahalachically connected to you. And just to repeat that without all of those complicated terms, what you own is connected to you on a deep spiritual level. How does this work? Again, we can give an entire share on this concept alone, but I will say it very, very simply, which is that there are levels of the self. The neshama, which, by the way, the maharal, the ramchal, the ramban, the shachem explained, you don't have a neshama, you are a neshama. It's your innermost layer of self. It's your essence. It's when you say I, you're referring to you, not your body, not your emotions, not your intellect, not even your, you know, whatever it is that you think you're referring to. What, what do you what, think about when you say I, who are you referring to? Referring to your yourself, your ani, your inner self, your consciousness, your awareness, your higher spiritual identity. And yes, we're not in touch with our absolute root self talked about this on endless endless occasions but your neshama is not something you have it's something you are but now there are levels right because first of all we're, we're not going to get into the concept of there are levels of the neshama we, we talked about this a couple of times but the idea of nefesh ruach neshama chayichida different levels of the neshama different levels of the soul but the idea without getting into the different terms and layers of the soul is that you are a neshama Right? But then there are extensions of yourself. Right? So, for example, one extension of yourself is when you get married. 
You're no longer just an individual, but you're also part of a, a, a shared self between you and your spouse. And then when you have children, right, your family is an expansion of yourself. And then your extended family, you're part of a larger self. And Klai role is part of a collective self. That's where the Rambam, famously, in Hilchot Shuvah, says someone who doesn't connect, I'm pretty sure it's Shuvah, says someone who doesn't, be, doesn't connect himself to Klai Yisrael, removes himself from Klai Yisrael, lives by himself, and doesn't want to be part of the Tzipor, even if he's a mamish at Tzaddik, Shomer Torah Mitzvos, and loves Hashem, if you remove yourself from Klai Yisrael, no, olam, no chilek in Olam Haba. Why? Because in Olam Haba, you exist as who you are, but part of who you are is part of a, a, a collective self, a collective consciousness, a collective neshama, Klai Yisrael, Knesset Yisrael. What's the idea? The idea is that if a leaf falls off of a tree, it no longer has life doesn't exist anymore. If a finger gets cut off from a hand and you don't put it back on, the finger decays and rots. If you disconnect yourself from clients, well, you don't exist. Why? Because you're part of a bigger self. And all the Ramchal, many Bali Machshav talk about how all of humanity is ultimately connected to, to Adam Harishan, where we're all expressions of Adam Harishan's neshama. So this idea that there are levels and layers, by the way, one of the most important skills to build is learning how to build hierarchies, learning how to categorize, learning how to interconnect, and learning how to build nuance where it's not just a simple idea and you move on, but you understand the levels and tiers and, and hagdaros and categories and how to understand that there are levels of the self, there are levels of the soul, there are levels of humanity, there are levels of consciousness. And now that we've built this idea of the first level of the self is the neshama. The second layer of your individual self, the outer extension of yourself, is your body. Now, without getting into the metaphysics of the physical, where the physical is an expression of the spiritual, so your body is actually an expression of your soul, right? The physical is always a reflection and emanation. Use the Torah to fit, to create the physical world. It's like a projector and the projection onto the screen is like a seed, uh, you know, expressing itself into a tree. It's like a zygote expressing itself into a human being. It's the idea of root and expression. So the physical is an expression of the spiritual. The body is an expression of the soul. And it's a very, very deep topic. But the idea is that it's also not only an expression, but a container for the neshama. It's a kli, and the inner essence, the ikr, is the self, is the soul. So now the body becomes an outer expression of the soul. What's the next layer? What's the next layer of extension? Your clothes. Your clothes are a vessel for the body. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu saw that Adam, Harishon, and Chava were embarrassed because they eat from the Eitz and their physical bodies went from being luminescent, transcendent, and they were immortal because their bodies can fully contain the Neshama, as the Ramban explains. The reason why they were not going to die is because their bodies were not going to decay. The moment they ate from the Eitz their bodies fell down to the way it is. Today. It's like the major says that they originally were Katnas Or which means that when you looked at Adam Arishon, he was wearing skin of light. What does that mean? It's like when you look at a light bulb, you don't see the bulb, you see light. Originally, the body was luminescent, it was transcendent. That's why his body was in Gan Eden. Our neshama goes to Gan Eden when we die. His body was on the level of our neshama. Right? Think about that. Think about that. That is profound. So Adam Arishon was on a transcendent level. When he ate from the Eitz he fell to this level of reality where his body was very, very physical and coarse and corporeal, and it was mundane and to the extent that it could no longer fully contain his neshama, and the body began to wither and die. And when he ate from these adas, he brought death to the world. 
And therefore his body became very physical. He was embarrassed. What's embarrassment? Busha. Embarrassment is when you feel like you are not seen or represented as who you truly are. So when someone embarrasses you, you want to disappear. You want to dig a hole and just disappear. Why? Because you don't want people to see you. Because they see you as something other than who you truly are. Adam HaRishon was embarrassed when he ate from the Yitzhadas and Chava was as well. Why? Because their bodies no longer reflected their true selves. So what did Hashem give them? Clothing. What's clothing? It's the extension of how you represent and, and, and reveal yourself in the world where not only are you avoiding the problem of embarrassment, but you are transforming the problem into the solution. Because now when people look at you, they can see you reveal something higher as opposed to just hiding the embarrassment of your body. And now the, it's one of those beautiful ideas where the problem doesn't get solved it gets transformed into something much more than just a solution. You uplift the problem itself. So you have the neshama, then you have your body, then you have your clothes. Your clothes are now the extension of how you outwardly reveal your body in the world. What's the next level? What's the outermost layer? Your possessions, your things, and your money. right? But your things, the things you own. So now let's, let's, let's understand this. Who are you? You are a self, a soul, a consciousness, a spiritual being. You also have a body. You're not a body, you have a body, but your body is still an extension and expression of you. Your clothes are an outwards expression of you. It does involve, I mean, to an extent, you don't wear all your clothes, so your clothes are your possessions. When you wear a piece of clothing, it becomes your next layer, next layer of expression. Your possessions and your belongings and your money is also the next layer of expression, of expression the next layer of extension. It is part of you. The things you own are connected to you, are part of you. And this is the entire sugya of kinyanim. Mamish, the entire sugya of kinyanim is understanding two simple things. How to create and how to break these connections. The connection is metaphysical. It's metahalachic. It's conceptual. It's spiritual. It's halachic. It's real. The connection is real. What is a kinyan? A kinyan is a halachic attachment. Right? What, what do you do when you create a kinyan? You take things that aren't you, that aren't yourself, and you attach it to you. Not mamish mamish to your inner, inner, inner self, but on the outside. Right to your like in terms of your halachic reality, it becomes attached to your halachic reality, to your spiritual um, existence, so to speak. So when you create kinyanim, when you change ownership, you're creating a halachic connection to something. So Hagbah and Mashicha and Chazaka and Chalipin and Kinyan Sudar and Situmta and Matana, these are all unique halachic kinyanim. And yes, the rules are different. There are different limitations and rules for each because each has its own unique mechanism for creating the halachic connection. But the idea remains the same, that we are creating a halachic connection. And when you understand this, you learn a sugya. And we're dealing with, does the kinyan work? Does the kinyan not work? Does it need das? Does it not need das? Do you need a physical action? Do you not need a physical action? How is it working? What if this, this problem comes up or that? And you have all these questions. What are you really trying to solve? You're trying to solve the problem of how do I create this connection? Is this, how does the connection get created? Is this enough to create the connection? What if it's lacking this? What if this situation happens? And you start to understand what you're trying to accomplish in the sugi. It changes the way you learn. Changes the way you learn. And there is... By the way, there's a unique example of this, which is creating something. When you create the thing, it naturally becomes an extension of you. 
because a creation is an expression of you. So, for example, Hashem is the Kona Olam. He's, he's the Bore Olam. He's, when you say, we say many times during davening, Kona, Kona, when we talk about Kaddish Baruch Hu in the world. Why? Because a Kaddish Baruch Hu created the world, and that allows him, not really allows him, but that creative element is the creation of the Kenyan between him and the world. Because what? If you create something, you own it. If you own it, you have a Kenyan on it. So, it's the same thing for, I mean, this gets into very interesting legal matters when it comes to copyright, but when you create a song or a piece of art, it's an expression of you, an extension of you, and that's already the connection between you and the creation. So the Kenyan is already there because you created it. And that's actually very interesting when it comes to different, there are a lot of very interesting things about, you know, creating something on someone else's property. Let's say you plant your seed on someone else's property. So that's a very interesting relationship because it's their property, you built the seed, you created it, you put in the work, whatever it is. But th- these are very interesting things. Um, th- there's, uh, when it comes to creating a land that you don't own, so Chaim Brisk, he, he quotes the Yishami, that if you work in a field of Hefker, the produce is yours since you created it. Right? If it's someone else's, it's complicated. But if you own the land, it's obviously yours. If you don't own someone else's land, it's complicated. But when it's Hefker, because you created it, so Rav Chaim says, based on this, that the, the idea is the reason why it's yours is because you created it. And therefore, if you work on someone else's field, then the halacha basically is that you have to pay, then he has to basically pay you the value of the work. Because it's his field, so therefore he owns it. But since you created it, um, you can only... Because you created it, you have enough input into it that he can only get control over it and own it if he pays you its value. And obviously you can do the same in terms of the opposite and figure out a way to do it. But the idea here is that creating something means that it's automatically an expression of you and that you already have some level of ownership. Now, what about the opposite? What about trying to break a Kenyan? When you're trying to sever your ownership from something. So... It's the same exact concept. We're trying to, instead of building the halacha connection between you and something, we're trying to sever, we're trying to break it. And now the question becomes, how does that, how do we do that? So there are many different examples of hefkur and yeish and silik and nechila, all different concepts, but the question's like this. How, can, number one, is it really possible to sever a connection between you and an object without replacing it with another owner? Can you make something from going from yours to no one's? It's not so simple. Because who is no one? How can it really be that no one owns it? What, it's a, if no one owned it, okay. But if you own it, how can you bring it back to a realm of ownerlessness? Is that really possible? So there's a famous Rambam, and a lot of Rishonim talk about this, where there's an approach with, with that Hefker is not releasing your ownership, but it's just allowing someone else to make a Kenyan. Because you cannot really remove your ownership from something. That's an extreme approach, where, by the way, we're not going to talk about this right now, but it's a very similar approach for marriage. There is an approach within the, within the sugya of Gershon and Gittin that Gershon and Gittin is not real. In the sense, well, of course it's real, it's a whole masechet, it's the whole, like, it's of course real, but it's not real the way you think it's real. Most people think that the way divorce is applied is that it breaks the marriage and the marriage no longer exists. There is an approach, and it's not mainstream, it's not lehalacha, but in the realm of Lambdas, there's an approach that marriage is eternal. It cannot be broken. Once you create marriage, you cannot break it. What does a get, what, what does a get do? What's get and what's Gershon? Gershon and Gittin, according to this approach, does not break the marriage. Because marriage is eternal. 
all it does is it creates a heter for the woman to get remarried. Now, it obviously breaks the marriage to an extent, and it limits, and, and if a coin gets you know divorced, he can't get... There, 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 there are very interesting questions and things that come up, but the idea, according to this approach, is that something is, once it's built, it's eternal, you can't just sever it as if it doesn't exist, but you can create a heter or a possibility for something else. So divorce doesn't break the marriage that allows the woman to get remarried. It's a heter for her to get remarried. And being mafkir, your object, doesn't remove your connection from it, but allows someone else to make a kinyan on it. Very, very interesting. And when it comes to all these different types for hefker and yeish and silik and mechila, for each of them, you want to ask, what is the concept doing? What does yeish do? Does yeish really remove my ownership? Does it just mean that he doesn't have to return it? That all interesting questions come up for basically all of these things. Hefker based in hefker. We asked, how does it work? Think of it like this. If ownership is objective, if it's halachic, if it's metaphysical, then if beisnin is given the ability to affect the halachic connection, it makes perfect sense. Because if Beisdin is representative of Kosh Baruch in the realm of halachic reality, and they're able to create, like for example, when someone wants to be, um, uh, you know, Geras, when someone wants to convert into, into Judaism, they have to do it with Beisdin. Why? Because Beisdin is a representative, it serves as the medium of representing Kosh Baruch Hu and creating the halachic reality. When it, the original Geras was Klai Shol and Torah, and Bema and Torah, there was a medium, Moshe Rabbeinu was the medium, and it was allowing all of Klaiso to convert. So Moshe represented the Gash Baruch Hu. Of course, then Gash Baruch Hu himself uh, did a lot of Ma'an Torah to begin with. Klaiso can handle it. So Moshe then served in as the you know, conceptual intermediary, which is a complicated topic, because when you think intermediary, you think about the Zara, we're not going to get into it. It's a very, very deep topic in terms of the proper and improper intermediaries. But Beisdin serves as that same intermediary of both um, serving as the intermediary between us and Hashem and also representing Hashem in the process of Geras. So if Beisdin now represents the creators of halachic reality in this world, and postgame are, you know, miniature versions of that, creating halachic reality, then Beisdin has the ability to say that your halachic ownership is null and void. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the Gemara, so the Gemara is actually in, in Gittin, Daflam and Gimel Mabez, where the Gemara debates whether Bezin, Hefker, Bezin, Bezin, Hefker, Bezin, Hefker allows Bezin to just break off halachic connection or even gives them the ability to create a halachic connection between that object and someone else. And it's actually based on, as I mentioned, the two psukim that the Gemara uses as sources, where one seems to say that Beisdin can only break off a Kenyan, the other seems to imply that they can also create. Now, this is honestly, the, the next, a uh, question that we mentioned about Kedushin, about marriage, marriage being a Kenyan. So this is a sugya which we can spend countless hours on, because if you go through Masech's Kedushin, it is an incredible Masechta. And literally, it's a strange Masechta, because it's a lot of it is just Hilchas Kenyanim. It's talking about different types of kinyan and which kinyanim work, which don't, and how to do it, and whether you can do it without telling. Do you need das? Do you need a mice? Do you need a sina? Do you need a kabbalah? All these very, very interesting debates in terms of how to create these kinyanim. And you take a step back and you say, why? Why is Kedushin like, literally a question of kinyanim? What's a kinyan? Think about the concept. What do we say? What's the concept of kinyan? Kinyan between you and an object is saying that there's a halachic, metaphysical, spiritual, deep connection between you and that object. In a sense, 
What is marriage? Marriage on the deepest level is creating a deep halachic, metaphysical, spiritual, profound connection between two neshamas, between two people. Two distinct realities now become more than... it's. On the one hand, you think of it as two distinct realities, two distinct people becoming one. It's not. It's two distinct realities, two distinct people, two neshamas, remaining individuals and creating a harmonious oneness. Where there's now a shared self, the relationship itself, these two... You know, you're bashed, you connect into oneness, and you still remain individuals, but you still are one. And there's that beautiful balance between maintaining your individuality and building that oneness. A lot of couples struggle because they either fall into this oneness where they lose themselves, or they just want to maintain their individuality, so they, you know, create too many boundaries and don't really give themselves into the relationship. But the idea is that what's a Kenyan? A king is creating a deep connection. What's marriage? Creating a deep connection. It's incredibly beautiful that, of course, the husband doesn't own his wife, but she becomes a part of him. Just like Chava was originally part of Adam Harish and was taken out and then they became back one again, just like the Midrash says that Adam and Chava originally one and dragon is being, and then who separate them into two separate beings and then they have to recreate that oneness. Well, that's what a Kenyan is on Kedushin. It's creating that oneness. It's the halachic mechanism of creating a spiritual, existential, metaphysical, metahalachic oneness between two different people where they become one and remain individuals as well. And that's the beauty of the entire Mesechta. It's lumdus and halacha of a Kenyanim, but it's a unique type of Kenyan. When you do a Kenyan an object, there's no das, because you're just connecting yourself to a, a, an inanimate object. When you do condition with a, with, with a beautiful human being, there's a whole different realm of Hilchas Kedushin. A whole different realm of Hilchas Kenyanim when it comes to Kedushin. You have to understand how to create the Kenyan. There has to be das. There has to be uh, uh, the, the creating the unison in a unique way where the standards are so much higher and it has to be for example one of the ways to do it is with kesef so you think you're buying your wife no it has to be done in a chashev way there has to be an element of, of, of cheshek and love and ahava and there has to be respect it's, it's a fundamentally profound sugya but it can be seen as so it can be seen as its exact opposite when you don't understand what a Kenyan is. You can literally say, like, halacha is archaic, a husband buys his wife, okay, I don't want to be part of that. But when you understand what a Kenyan is, it's the most beautiful, sensitive, genuine, deep way of building this existential spiritual oneness. And to transition into a, a less intimate area of halacha, this enters into such a fascinating sugi as well when it comes to partial ownership or unique cases of ownership. Because we mentioned different paradigms of ownership. One is you have control. It's in your vicinity, in your property where you can control it. It's in your rishus. And we mentioned that that's not real ownership. Halachic ownership is a, is a spiritual ownership. But if you really... And this is where nuance comes in, by the way. Nuance is always understanding that the spectrum, and when you deepen, you don't reject the initial layers, you deepen it. You don't fully leave what you rejected, you just build nuance. So one approach is that halachic ownership is all that there is. There is nothing other than spiritual ownership, and that's the only thing we consider to be halachically significant. If you learn halacha, you go through shas, if you learn these sugyas, you start to realize that halacha is very sensitive and gives a lot of value to physical rishas. The one, it's in your control, even if you don't have what we'd refer to as spiritual or halachic ownership. Because 
Halachic ownership is important. What if you have halachic ownership without control? What if you have control without halachic ownership? What if you have control of only a limited halachic ownership? There's so many possibilities. And you're going to say, oh, where, where did this come up? Where does this come up? What about uh, when you steal an object? So you have physical ownership of it, but you don't have halachic ownership. Maybe, maybe you only have limited halachic ownership. When you find an Aveda, you don't, it's not yours, but you're physical, you have control over it. What about when you borrow someone's object? You have somewhat ownership over it, you're even allowed to use it, but it's not yours. What if you're renting it? If you, I'm paying for it, I'm paying to use it, so I somewhat own it, but do I fully own it? Can I give it away? No, it's not mine, I'm using it. So you start to realize that what are the limitations? What is this type of ownership? What do we need? What are the different parameters? So there are so many different options. For example, what are the potential limitations of having partial ownership or just having spiritual ownership or just having physical ownership? You can't be maktish. You can't dedicate this to the base on mikdash because it's not yours. You don't. You can't give it away. You can't be uh, mechanish with it. You can't get married with it because you have to have full ownership to get married or something. What about on sukkahs for a lulav? Right? It's not lachem. Now, that's a very interesting question when it comes to, let's say, a stolen lulav. Without getting into mitzvah babavir, without getting into all these other things, what about the fact that it's you have physical rishos over it, but it's not... I mean, for the person who it got stolen from, yeah, you can't really shake that lulav because you need to <laughs> you need to physically shake the lulav. So it, it's not you don't have it, right? You don't have the physical lulav. But for the ganav who stole the lulav, he has a lulav, and you know maybe assuming the mitzvah bavir isn't a problem right now, maybe you can say I I have I have a lulav, so it's my lachem. I can I can fulfill the mitzvah of uh, of lulav. No, you can't. So. Let's try to deepen this, because when it comes to, um, let's say you have halachic ownership without control, right? So someone steals your object, or someone, or you lose an object, or you lend it to someone, you give a, you give it to a shomer, whether it's a, a, a shoel or a socher, or a shomer chinam, shomer socher, whatever type of shomer it is, you give it to a shomer, so you still have halachic ownership. It's still yours. Now, that's not necessarily true, there are unique ways of approaching what happens when you rent something. Do I when I when I get when I lend something to someone or when I allow them to, to rent it, maybe I'm giving them not only physical abilities, meaning they're able to use it physically, maybe I'm saying for the interim, you're also the halachic owner. At the end of the allotted time, and let's say I've let you borrow it for a week or I let you rent it for a month or a year, whatever it is, at the end of this time you have to give it back to me. In the meantime, you have full ownership. Now to what extent? Can they do whatever they want during that time period? Can they give it away? Can they be mechanish with it? Can they be magdisha? Can they do things like that? It might be that in that year or in that week, they can do whatever they want. At the end of the week, they have to answer to whatever they did, meaning they need to bring this thing itself. Now, you can argue maybe they don't need to bring the thing itself. They can bring the value of the thing, especially if it's money, but it's not so push it. It's not so pushy, but on the simple level, we already have a possibility where someone has halachic ownership and no physical ownership, and physical ownership and no halachic ownership. For example, where do you have physical ownership and no halachic ownership? What if you're the one who stole the object? But let's say someone is the one who stole the object. Or it should be, let's say someone finds an avidi of the opportunity to um, fulfill the mitzvah of Hashavah's Avedah. And in one of the interesting questions also, by the way, is Chameitz on Pesach. Chametz and Pesach, the Isser is what? The Isser is you can't, 
you know, have chametz, you also can't see chametz. So what does it mean to own chametz? What if it's in your rishos, but you've sold it? So it's in your rishos, but you sold it to a guy, so you don't have halachic ownership over it anymore. But it's in your rishos. For Bali Rabbi it's still, let's say it's still in your house, and you still have physical ownership, but you transferred the halachic spiritual ownership to a guy. Is that enough to avoid Bali Rabbi So these are, these are interesting questions to think about. Right? The Shomrim, the Shomrim. So when it comes to Hilcha Shomrim, these are one of the most interesting because you have four different Shomrim, and they generally get split up into two different categories, where the Shoel and the Sachor have more ownership because they are able to use the object, and a Shomer Chinam and a Sachor are not really seen. I mean, there's different ways of thinking about it. You can see none of them have any ownership at all. You can say only a Shoel has ownership because he is, you know may be able to replace the Baal in the meantime, replace the owner. Or maybe a Shoal and a Sachor, because a Sachor paid for it, but he also gets to use it. Maybe a Sachor, maybe a sachor is even higher level than Shoal, because he paid. Maybe because I paid, I get more ownership. But in general, it's usually that either they have no ownership or just a Shoal and Sachor of ownership. But it's not so Pashat, because once you understand the importance of physical Rishos, a Shomer Chinam and Shomer Sachar, someone who watches it for free or watches it to get paid to watch it, um, they might have levels of ownership as well. Uh, there is a whole sugya in Shas, fascinating sugya, about the double ownership of uh, a stolen object. Right? You have Geneva, and also by Aveda and Picatun as well, where it's not so pushed who owns it. Because the one who has control over it, the thief, right, he made an illegal kinyan. It was Asr. Right? He took control over the object by force. But he, first of all, he definitely has um, control. He might also have some halachic ownership. It's not so pushy, especially you know, adding into the realm of yeish and all these other things. But someone who finds a lost object and someone who's a shomer also, um, the distinction between them and a ganav is that they didn't come into contact with the object illegally. So they might not be penalized as much, meaning we're not going to reward a ganav for doing an, an avera. So if the reason why we wouldn't give him ownership is because he made an illegal kinyan, a shomer or someone who finds an Aveda, they didn't come in contact with this object illegally, so they might be able to actually have some level of ownership. Um, or let's say, for example, you have um, the, the the actual owner of this stolen object, or the Aveda, or the... Um, let's say you give it to a Shomer. So the actual owner, the object is still an extension of him, and it's intrinsically connected to him, so the gunner still has to pay it back. And that's why, for example, what's... What's Yeish? Yeish, there's different ways of approaching, but one way of, of understanding Yeish is that the owner is breaking off that connection and saying that while the Ganav, um, or when I lost the object, they still had to return it to me, once I'm Yeish, not only don't I have physical ownership, but I'm giving up my halachic ownership. It's not the only way of approaching Yeish, there are other approaches as well, but that's one approach. Another approach is, another concept is Shinui. Or shinu shame, shinu ma'isa. If you learn, um, you know, and later in Baba Kama, it talks about all these fascinating sugyas. And what if the ganav does a shinui, which is what when he changes the object itself? So the object is no longer the object that he stole. Meaning what? That he owes the original owner the old object, but this is no longer that object. So now, not only does he have physical rishus over the object, but now he's 
removed the halachic connection between this object and the previous owner because the object is no longer the same object. So one way of approaching Shinoi is that you've changed it to the extent that you can break off the original halachic ownership of the owner, and now the Ganaf, if there's a Shinoi, Shem, or Shinoi, or all these different types of Shinoiim, the Ganaf still has to pay back. You have to pay back the value, but he doesn't have to pay back the actual object. And you know, and the end of Babakama discusses what constitutes a shino. It's a very interesting sugya. Um, and here's also an interesting question, which comes up actually in Babakama daf samachasamabez. A question of do you need control in order to be maktish something, right? So if you steal something or you find an avida, you can't be maktish. Um, you can't devote that, designate that to, to the base of maktish because it's not yours. But what if it is yours, but someone stole it from you? So. Rav Yochanan says neither the gun of nor the owner can be marked as a stolen object um, if the owner wasn't Mayaish. What's this far? Because the gun of he doesn't own it. He just has his physical rishos. The owner, he might own it, but he doesn't have control over it. It's not in his physical rishos. So since he can't use it, he can't derive benefit from it, he doesn't really have it in his rishos, it's not the, it doesn't have full ownership. And therefore he can't do it. There's something lacking. Rish Lakish says he can be marked as Why? Because the Ganev can't be Makdash, he doesn't own it. He has physical shoes, doesn't own it. But the the owner, since the owner still has the, the spiritual halachic ownership, that's enough to be Makdash something. Meaning what Rish Lakish holds, the reason why he's able to do it is because you don't need control to have halachic ownership to the extent to, to be Makdash something. All you need is the halachic ownership. You know, having Rish Lakish practically in order to successfully be Makdash it, in order to actually give it, yeah, you need it. But to fulfill the halachic mechanism of, of, of being makdish, you just need halachic ownership, and you have halachic ownership, so you can do it. So let's move on. So there are a couple exceptions. There are, we're not going to get into this now, because these are a little complicated, but there there are there are cases where halacha does recognize control and having rishus to be really significant. So for example, when it comes to normal, Kenyan normal transaction, it's a normal halachic transaction. But there are some halachic exceptions, like when it comes to the booty of war. So if in a mulchama, where you conquer the area, you receive the spoils of war as a result of your conquest. And that's halachically accepted. And the reason why is because in war, halachic reality changes. And we're not going to get into that right now, but it's just an interesting concept to think about. For example, you're not allowed to kill someone. But in war, you are allowed to kill someone. Uh, there are a lot of classic halachos when it comes to risking your life and pikuach nefesh. A lot of those don't apply in times of war because halachic reality and really the rules of reality shift and change in times of war. Um, again, the misuse of the concept of taking ownership by control and by power is stealing. Right, you take something by force, and also that's as we mentioned, that's the philosophy of the animal world of survival of the fittest, where the strongest win and control everything. Um, now, before we transition to a really fascinating, perhaps like a, a climactic element to this topic, there, there are examples of this principle where the non-Jewish world denies them because they deny objective reality and. You have to understand that when you see the world through the realm of truth, where Allah is real, spirituality is real, metaphysics, understanding how to deal with that which can't be seen, there are objective truths to the world, then, for example, the most basic concept is that there's morality, 
right? So if you reject morality, say, oh, no, just practical morality. I mean, be a good person so people are good to you. Be a good person so that we can have society function. There's no real truth. It's just practical. So that's really what we just talked about for the past while. There are other examples as well. For example, ahava, love. So we believe that love is a deep spiritual truth and that marriage is a, a, a powerful expression of that. And love is not just, for example, a scientist, a scientist will tell you that love is just a, a bunch of chemical reactions and there's nothing real. Marriage is not real. Marriage, is, for example, in, in the non-Jewish world, marriage is an agreement. It's a contractual agreement. In halacha, marriage is a metaphysical connection between two people. It's real. That's why the Rambam, when he talks about the halachas of Kedushin, the Rambam, he, he really, he, he says in the most beautiful, inspiring way, he says, before Ma'an Torah, men and women just agreed one day to have a relationship. It was just an agreement. After Ma'an Torah, you need to create a meta-halachic bond. You have to do Kedushin. You have to enter into a halachic reality. It's not enough to just agree and, you know, sign a, a legal document. You're fundamentally shifting your metaphysical reality. And that's how the Rambam frames the entire uh, halachic discussion when he talks about marriage. It's something beautiful, something real. It's not just an agreement. It's not just practical. And the same thing when it comes to beauty. Beauty isn't just like, you know, something nice. Beauty, the concept of beauty is one of the deepest spiritual Jewish concepts. It's teferis. It's the harmony of seemingly conflicting opposites. You go to a sunset on the beach and you say it's beautiful. Why? Is it the sun? Is it the water? Is it the reflection? Is it the scene? It's all these different pieces coming together. A beautiful idea, a beautiful piece of music, anything beautiful. What's the beauty? The beauty is all these different pieces coming together to create something that transcends the sum of its parts. And, and meaning and purpose to life. If you don't believe in Hashem, you don't believe in a higher reality, you don't believe in, in anything beyond the physical world, there is no meaning to the world. There's no purpose. There's no reason really to do anything other than for very base, base reasons. Just for the sake of pleasure, for the sake of enjoyment. You know, self-created meaning, just so that you can enjoy your experience here. But when you believe in a higher purpose, a higher meaning, everything becomes infinitely meaningful because everything you do in this world has an impact on everything in a higher sense where you're translating everything finite into something infinite, everything physical into something spiritual, and you're living on a higher plane while still in this world because you are tapped into something way beyond the limited construct of the physical world. But what I want to do now, and, and we'll essentially end off on, on this, and maybe you know, we'll conclude with, with just a couple of points that we, we raised in the, in the very beginning in terms of certain questions, but what I want to do now is I want to frame, I want to frame something really fascinating, which is a discussion that we started, but I want, to I want to develop a little deeper, which is understanding why your possessions are an actual aspect of yourself. Because I want to take it to the next level. Because so far we, we talked about the idea of creating a metaphysical connection, a spiritual connection, the idea of creating kenyanyan, but it gets even deeper. Because... If you think about the way life works, the way that life actually works in this world is that you're given time. You're given time. Akash Baruch gives you time. And time is potential. And you're born with, in a certain sense, infinite potential, in a certain sense, finite potential. And it's a very deep topic where, on the one hand, you have finite potential, something which I often think about, which is that 
if you're here for a purpose, that means that that's your potential. So on a certain hand, you have finite potential. It might be limitless relative to the way you think about your potential, but you have a, a limitless, limited potential where you can truly become the greatest version of yourself. On the other hand, in Mazel Yisrael, which means that your root transcends yourself, which means that at your actual root, your true root, Akash Baruch Hu, you have no limits. You can become anything. That's why Avram Avinu transcended his midos, transcended his limits by expressing the midah of Yira by Akedas Yitzchak. And Yaakov Avinu transcended his midah of Emes when it came to Lavan. He had to deal with, you know, he had to, uh, when it came to, sign out when it came to um, Esau and Yitzchak, he had to lie in order to get the brachos. And he also, the the Bali Mashavah talked about how he had to deal with Lavan with trickery and with deceit to defeat Lavan, which is a, a complicated topic we're not going to talk about right now, but the idea is that he transcended himself and expressed Sheker for the sake of a higher truth. And Yitzchak transcended Gvura to, well, we're not going to get into exactly how, but it's... It, the essential component of really fulfilling your ultimate, ultimate, ultimate self is fulfilling your unique purpose and showing yourself that you're not doing that for yourself, but you're able to get beyond yourself. So Avram was an ish chesed, and he transcended chesed and, and held himself back from who he truly thought he was in order to fulfill the rest of Hashem. That's the essential concept of the Akedah, where the Malach says afterwards, now I know that you're also a Baal Yira, right? Gvura. Not just chesed of you know loving kindness and just doing all of these beautiful expressions of of love and, and outwards expression of love for Hashem and love for people, but also knowing how to give up who you are, transcend it, and show gvura, which was the ultimate challenge of Akira Tzitzchak. Yaakov did the same thing by giving up MS um, for the sake of a higher MS, which required him to actually engage in sheker. But the idea, and that was a complete tangent I had, <laughs> for anyone who has trouble uh, concentrating when people go on tangents, I apologize, but that was definitely something interesting to think about. But the idea is that we are given so much potential, and when you're born, you're born with all that potential. And if you live for 100 years, you're given 100 years of pure potential. And yes, there's not just like nothingness in that potential. There's the potential for becoming who you're supposed to become. But you decide how to actualize that potential. You can develop your mind, develop your das, you can develop your midos, develop your relationships, your relationship with Hashem, with your family and friends, with yourself, which by the way is the root of how you build all your other relationships. And you can also devote yourself to improving your physical health, you know, eating healthy, exercising. It's tough relative to you know learning Torah and developing your mind and inner self, but it's truly important. You want to also develop your emotional well-being. You want to make sure you're developing not only your you know deeper intellectual self, but your deeper exper experiential self as well. So you want to not only analyze concepts and analyze Torah, you want to experience and think and feel and kind of see the world through Torah. You want to live Torah, not just think about Torah intellectually, but really live a Torah life, which requires Torah permeating your inner self and not just being an analytical intellectual exercise, which is important. A lot of people, they reject the analytical, philosophical uh, externalizing of Torah because they say, oh, you have to really feel it and live it. That's true, but the only way you can truly do that is if you also embrace the analytical, philosophical, uh, conceptualizing of Torah as well. You need to marry the conceptual, analytical, philosophical, you know, 
learning Gemara, learning Gemara Bein, learning Halacha with Machshava, with philosophy, with deeper experiential you know, ideas, and not say that you have to do one or the other. It's a marriage, it's a synthesis of both. But in addition to that, you also spend your time developing your things. And this is important. It's not the goal of life, but your things are important. They're only important, though, as a means to enable you to do what you're actually here for, which is to grow and fulfill your potential. So, naturalize your potential. So, essentially, you are given a lifetime of potential, a lifetime of time. And you choose how to actualize that potential. You choose how to actualize your time. And yes, there are people who are infatuated with everything they can be. And they don't actually actualize their potential. There are people who spend all their life doing, 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 trying to actualize their potential, but they have no vision. They have no sense of what they're trying to accomplish. You need to bridge that gap and synthesize those two. Where you think, anything you want to create in reality needs to originate within your mind. But in order to do that, you have to also learn how to actually accomplish and push and pursue your greatness. And you have to learn how to continuously grow and actualize your potential, not just have visions and goals and dreams and not just to do, 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 but learn how to do both. Learn how to you know, think big and then just push forward. Reassess every once in a while and push forward. That's how you actualize your potential. And here's the powerful idea. Your things, your property, your money, the things you own, they become an expression of you. They become an aspect of your actualized potential. Why? Because when you devote your, your time in this world to earning possessions, those possessions are now ref are reflected as an aspect of your investment of your time. So your possessions are an aspect of you, just like all the Torah you learn, all the ideas you learn, they are now yours. You translated or exchanged your time and effort and energy for that acquirement. The same thing applies for objects and money and things and property. So what does that mean? That means that wasting your things or wasting your money is wasting an aspect of your life. It's throwing an aspect of your life away. So once you learn that your money is part of you, changes everything. Changes everything. And this, by the way, before we get to some of the really powerful Torah here, this explains one of the reasons why stealing might be us or even to save your life. Because what happens when you steal from someone? You steal away part of their life. It's, a part, it, it's, it's essentially a conceptual murder of a part of them and a part of their lifetime. So it does reside within the realm of Ritzicha. And it actually makes a lot of sense. And here's a proof, by the way. Here's a proof that your things and your money are actually an expression of you and your actualized time. If you support Torah with money, what happens? Right, Yisachar is vulan. So let's say you're not a, a Yisachar. Let's say you support money, you support Torah with your money. So... The Gemara talks about who's going to be resuscitated during the first stage of Tchiyas HaMesim. And the Gemara says, it's people who so long to see Yerushalayim rebuilt and Mashiach to come. Right? That's, that's one category of people. Right? Why? Because if you so long to see it, Hashem's going to give you this chus of coming back to see it happen. So it's the yearning. That's why we, the Rabbi includes this in and we talk about this, how it's so important to yearn for Mashiach, to want it, to genuinely want it. The second category of people are the people who devoted their lives to Torah. Right? People who devoted it, because what? 
Torah is the dew of 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 tchias amesim, right? Tal shall tchias shall tchia. That's the lashon of Chazal. So it's the spiritual Torah is the spiritual substance, which will cause and bring forward the tchias amesim. Because think about it like this: uh, what do we? What's the lashon for someone who's buried? Kvura, right? Kever is also a womb. That's where the Maris Hamachpela is where. Uh, the Avos were buried, but it's also the the womb, so to speak. A kever is a womb where everyone's going to, Maharal explains that everyone's going to come back uh, in the time of Tchiyas from Maras HaMachpila. That's also, by the way, why um, couples are buried together in Maras HaMachpila, because you're basically burying yourself as a shared self, because that's who you are at root. But the idea is that Torah itself is going to be the source of Tchiyas HaMesim. So if you absorb that energy of Torah, you spent your whole life ingrained uh, and just immersed within the realm of learning Torah, that, that's what Eitz Chaim is. Eitz Chaim is the tree of life. This is what allows you to be resuscitated in Tchiyas HaMesim, because you invested yourself in Torah. So people who longed for Mashiach, people who invested themselves in the, the root and source of Tchiyas which is Torah, Torah energy, Torah, the, the Shafa, the, the, the Ruach of Torah. But then there's the third category. And it's the people who facilitated and supported Torah. And it's the same idea. Why? Because if you were the reason why Torah was learned, you took your potential time. Yeah, there are people who took their time and they devoted it into Torah itself. And if we're going to be honest, that's the ideal. Why? Because there's the schar and there's what you become. And the schar might be the same, but what did you become? Who are you? What's your mind? What, 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 that's why the greatest zvulan is also a yisachar. The greatest person who supports Torah also loves Torah, cherishes Torah, learns Torah whenever they can. But without getting into that dichotomy, the point is that what if you support Torah, that you spent your time, your potential, your energy, and you took that time and you devoted it to money, but you took that money and devoted it to making sure Torah was learned. So you took your time and because of your time, energy, and potential, Torah was learned. So your support of Torah is the creation of Torah and therefore you both get the... That's why Yisrach and Zvulun, they both get 100% of the merit. They both get 100% zuchus. And a wife who enables her husband and pushes her husband, inspires her husband and sons to learn Torah, get 100% of the merit. And it's one of those things where... When you realize that everything in your vicinity, everything in your circle, everything in your life that you acquire is an expression and connected to you, then how you use it, how you use it also becomes an expression of you. So the reason why you both get schar is because you used your time and the Torah learner used used their time to learn the actual Torah and the supporter of Torah used their time to create that expression of Torah because it's only because of their money and their support that the Torah was actually learned. And by the way, just as an aside, this is an incredible, incredible idea for avoiding jealousy. Because what's the idea of avoiding jealousy to begin with? The idea of avoiding jealousy is when you recognize, as the Ramchal explains, that everything Hashem gave you, your genetics, your family, your upbringing, like everything in your life, your abilities, your intellectual abilities, spiritual abilities, emotional, physical, like everything Hashem gave you is to help you fulfill your unique role in the world. So 
it makes no sense to compare yourself to other people because number one, they haven't gone through what you've gone through. Number two, they're not here in this world to fulfill the same purpose that you're here. And your happiness will come from achieving your unique potential. So trying to say, I wish I had that, or I wish I had that, it's not true because you wish you had that because you think you'd be happier if you had that, but you're gonna find your unique happiness once you find your unique role in life, which means actualizing your unique potential. But this also applies to your things because your possessions, your things, your money, everything Hashem gave you are assets Hashem gave you to help you fulfill your role in the world. And when you realize that whatever Hashem gives you is to help you fulfill your unique role in the world and that you don't need anything else except that which Hashem gives you, then you don't have to be jealous. Because the like everything that you need, Hashem makes sure you get. And this is so profound because this is the underlying core of why Yaakov went back to get the Pacham Kitanim. Because think of it, Yaakovinu is wealthy. Number two, he he was risking his life for pacham katanim, little vessels. But what's the idea? Everything that he owned, every single thing that he owned was part of his life. Yaakov gave it all to Hashem. Everything he was, he devoted to the truth, he devoted to Hashem, which means that Yaakov used everything Hashem gave him to serve Hashem. Not a single thing was extra. Not a single small container. So why he risk his life? Because it shows, now, obviously you have to understand his cheshvan, but it shows the value of every single thing that Hashem gives us, we need to use to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And what? That's the MS. That's Yaakov's Minda. MS. Everything he used was the MS to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu, serving Hashem to the max. It's like, when you realize your possessions are a part of your life, then... You don't waste your time, but you also don't waste your things. And that means that if you're given money, if you're given possessions, those possessions are a reflection of your invested time. And wasting those things or wasting that money is like wasting your life. It's like throwing away your time. So Yahuvina was literally saving his own life. Are you allowed to risk your life to save your life? Absolutely. Now, is that a really, really powerful way of approaching? Yes, because in the sugya, for example, why are you allowed to go into a certain surgery to save your own life? Or why are you allowed to, it's a classic question, are you allowed to risk your own life to save someone else's life? That's a really important sugya where I've given shirim on that, but that's something which we need to really delve deeper into in terms of what type of risk, how risky, you know, how, are you sure you're going to save the person's life? Are you high to do it? Is it us to do it? Is it much to do it? Interesting questions. But, the idea here is that Yaakov was trying to save a part of his life. So he was risking to save a part of his life. He wasn't just risking it for money, he was risking it for the sake of Pikuach Nefesh, from a very, very deep perspective. And that's why Chazal say that Yaakov never wasted any seed. Now, Chazal say, Lo ra'akari biyamav. So they say that Reuven was racist on it, was his first job, which seems to be impossible, but the idea is that and, and this is where we have to understand like how to approach Chazal, where there's a literal approach and a deeper approach, and they can both be true. But the deeper approach here is that he didn't waste any of his potential. Right? Seed represents energy. It's something that could be, something that has potential. So that's why the Zohar says that wasting words is like wasting seed. Because wasting speech or teaching the Talmud who isn't Hagon, Chazal say that it's like wasting seed. Why? Because... Wasting seed is wasting potential. Wasting time is wasting potential. Wasting your money, wasting your things is wasting potential. And wasting words is wasting root potential. Because when you speak, you share yourself. So that's time and that's expressive energy. And there's something really, really powerful here. 
because Yaakov applied this principle to his entire life, which means he didn't waste time, he didn't waste any of his life, he also didn't waste his things. And therefore, none of his potential could be lost, and he was willing to even risk his life to get the Pachum Katanim. If you think about it, that is so profound, and it gives such a deeper approach to something which seems to be so like, oh yeah, Yaakov went back to get the vessels. No, he was expressing a value system. And that's, by the way, you have to also balance this with nuance, which means, well, you have to have a hierarchy for yourself, a hierarchy of values. It's like, everyone will agree that you should do good. Everyone will agree you shouldn't do bad. But what if you have to choose between two, between doing two good things? You have to choose the better of the two. What if, you, what if you have to choose between two unfortunate circumstances? You want to choose the lesser evil. So when it comes to life, you have to understand how to deal with conflicting values, conflicting ideas, conflicting principles. You have to understand Iker and Tuffel. So yes, your property and your money is important, but it's not nearly as important as things which have more value like ideas, and like meaning, like purpose, like Torah. And Avudas Hashem has to be the center of your life. How to do that has different expressions. Is money and possessions and things, is that part of it? Yes, but there's a hierarchy. And that's why there's a fascinating idea that Hebrew, Lashon HaKodesh, is not just you know communicative, it's expressions of reality. Meaning that the words have truth to them. Which is why a davar, a word, also means a davar, a thing. That the, the, the words mean the thing themselves, which, which is why there's such tremendous depth in the Hebrew language. If you start learning through Bali Nechshav and the Maharal, they pick up on all the depth within, which in, within every single Hebrew word. And that's why there's not a single Hebrew word for the word mine. You can't say that's my house, or that's my car. You can say yesh li. There is to me. Because it builds that nuance that yes, your possessions are an expression of you, and yes, they belong to you. Yes, there's a halachic kinyan, but the fundamental you, the real you, that's your neshama, that's your inner world, that's your inner self. That's something intangible. Possessions are here to help you build your world, help you accomplish your potential, to help you sustain yourself, but also to help you fulfill the impact you want to have in this world. You need money to have an impact. It's like every organization, every single true big initiative and idea and a stat, you need money. But don't mistake in the money for the goal. The goal is the content, in your essence, the ikr. The tafel is that which enables it. And that's, by the way, we mentioned the big machlokas between Yaakov and Esav. It's not just on whether ownership is real, but it's on Iker and Tafel. That Yaakov said the Iker is the inner self. And Esav said the Iker is the body. And that's why Yaakov chose Torah and Esav chose the physical, because you need both. It's the classic Midrash that says that Yaakov and Esav had a battle where Esav wanted Olam Hazeh and Yaakov wanted Olam Haba. So the, the classic question is that that's not a battle. One person wants chocolate ice cream, one person wants vanilla ice cream. You don't have an argument. You say, okay, you can have it, unless there's only one flavor, and they both want the one scoop. But in this case, you have chocolate, you have ice cream, you have om om hazeh. Yaakov wants one, Esav wants the other. What's the argument? But the answer is that they both wanted both. But Yaakov said the ikr is om haba, the ikr is the spiritual, the ikr is Torah. But I need the physical to uplift, to enable, to express that, and to engage in this world. You need a physical body, you need money, you need things. But the ikr... That's the essence. And Asaph says, no, the opposite. I just want the physical, but I need a spirit to animate my body. I need, if I'm going to enjoy this world, I need to be alive. I don't really care about the spiritual. I just need it to enable the ichor, which is what? Which is the physical. Now, here's something also very interesting, which is 
once you understand that your things are fundamentally connected to you, are an expression of your potential, are really a part of your life and, and, and really a part of you, then the question becomes, are you allowed to do whatever you want with them? Because think of it like this. If there's no such thing as ownership, then why wouldn't you be able to do whatever you want with your things? Meaning you throw them away, waste it, do whatever you want. But if ownership is halachic, it's real, it's an extension of you, then you can't do whatever you want with it. It's like, think of some fascinating halachic sugyas. For example, life itself. Can you do whatever you want with your life? Can you, chas v'shalom, there's a big question. Can someone commit suicide? I mean, if you own your life, if your life is yours, you can do whatever you want with it, right? But if your life is not yours, but it's, so to speak, given to you as a gift and a responsibility by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you can't commit suicide. Now, are there cases where it's mutter? There is a whole sugya of cases where it's mutter, and we're not going to get into that now because we could spend hours talking about that in terms of Kiddush Hashem, in terms of saving others' lives, in terms of not violating one of the big three. There are lots of sugyas and shashmas talk about Cases of suicide where it seems to be mutter, shal commit suicide, shimshon commit suicide. Lots of interesting, interesting halacha questions about suicide. But in general, you're not allowed to give up your life. Oh, but it's yours. Yeah, but you can't do whatever you want with it. What about your body? Not your soul, not your life itself, not your life in this world, but your body. Can you, for example, chavala? Are you allowed to injure yourself? Are you allowed to cut off a finger? So the the Gemara says explicitly that you're not allowed to. Uh, violate the Isra of Chavalah, not only on someone else, but also to yourself. When are you allowed to do it? There are situations where we are mental, where you are allowed to do it. For example, surgery. Why are you allowed to have someone cope in your body? If it's a Tzarech Gadol, then it's Mutter. So for the sake of saving your life, you're allowed to do Chavalah, even though, ideally, you wouldn't be allowed to damage your body. What about your things? Your things are also an extension of yourself. So Baal Tashkas, you're not allowed to just waste things. You can't just destroy your things. Oh, but when are you allowed to? It's more makele than suicide, right? Suicide, you might only be allowed to in very, very, very extenuating circumstances. Like, you know, to avoid major, major, major various major problems. Uh, when it comes to wasting your things, you are allowed to destroy it if it's for your benefit. So, for example, you rely to burn your clothes for the sake of fire, for the sake of heat, so you can either you know warm yourself up or cook. Meaning, as long as it's positive, we allow it. So what's the idea? The idea is that there's a hierarchy. There's you yourself, then there's your body, then there's your things, but they're all parts of you. And it's not just a practical relationship, it's a fundamental relationship. And this gets back to answering our original questions, which is that number one, ownership is real. Ownership is not just practical, it's not just there so that you can, um, because you have control over it, it's fundamentally real. And your things are an extension of you. And when you understand that there is a hierarchy, there's you, your actual self, your neshama, then you have a body, and you have things, but they're all parts of you. And when you understand the relationship between you and your things, you understand that stealing, why are you stealing so bad? Why is there even an opinion maybe that you can't steal to save your life? Because stealing is violating this person, ripping off a part of him. You're breaking, you're breaking real borders. You're stealing a part of their life. And when it comes to understanding the problem of, let's say, uh, niske mamon. Why, why is your animal considered to be you? Why, if your animal damages, why is it like you damaged? Or for a carbon, why are you allowed to bring your carbon uh, as opposed to bringing you? Like, you should be the one on the mezbeach. The answer is what? That your things are an extension of you. When your 
mammon damages, it's that a part of you damaged. When you bring your you bring your carbon, you bring an animal on the mizbeach, you're bringing an extension of you in the mizbeach, and you're basically saying that it was the animalistic part of me that did the avira. I'm giving up that part of me. I'm going to try to become my best self. When it comes to tzras, it's a very similar thing. That things are an extension of you. So when it goes on your clothes or your house, that's kind of like a first step. It's an outer aspect of you that's being affected, and that wakes you up. But the basic, basic idea, and the real idea which we should take away from this, is that number one, everything in life has significance. Number two, everything is deep. Everything is spiritually, philosophically, metaphysically, halachically deep, and everything affects everything. And you can't ignore real questions, because you can spend your whole life learning Hilchas Kenyanim and 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 you know when it comes to Geneva and Gzela and, and, and Aveda and Shomrim and all of these sugis and have no idea what you're talking about because you don't really understand the core. And when you understand this one idea, which is that ownership is real, it's not just practical, it's not just a practical societal agreement getting over the the issue of just control and, and power, but it's truly spiritually halachically real then it changes the way you approach this whole chilek of Torah. It changes the way you approach your time. It changes the way you approach money. It changes the way you approach things. And it uplifts your approach to all these things. So we should be inspired to deepen our understanding of all aspects of Torah, to use all the depth and all the principles we just developed, and to use them both in how we learn these sugyas in the future in Torah, and also let it permeate the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves, the way we see Hashem, the way we see Klaishal, the way we experience life. And let's live these ideas, which is the true purpose of learning Torah, not just to learn it, but to live it.